electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Tough geopolitical tape this morning, but in the midst of all that, DoorDash shares are surging after delivering some strong results. We'll get a deep dive on those numbers and why some pandemic trends might be here to stay. Then NVIDIA takes a pause after a massive run in 21 and some pretty high expectations going into the print. We'll break down why shares are red, almost 8%. And then finally, Dan Loeb, his $1 trillion bet, what he thinks the market is missing on Amazon in a moment, John. Yeah, but Carl, we will begin today's feed with a check on delivery as DoorDash shares now up about 12%, taking us back to level seen, well, a couple weeks ago. Going through the numbers, gross order volume was up 36% with average order volume steady, meaning the reopening might not be as big of a headwind to delivery names as some assumed. Monthly active users, people who placed an order on the app within the last month, growing a double digits to a record 25 million. Some analysts not thrilled with the cost guidance, though. CEO Tony Hsu says they're going to continue to invest in expansion geographically and into new categories, including express grocery delivery with Albertsons this morning, uh, they announced. So the question between DoorDash, Uber, Amazon, Shopify, who's got the best strategy for last mile delivery, D? And will the latest round of costs pay off for investors. I mean, it worked for Amazon, certainly in the initial e-commerce era, but now this different fleet of companies uh, investing for different reasons. We were just talking to Shopify about this yesterday. Yeah, they're spending big on logistics. You mentioned public companies, but there's also a whole host of private companies backed by VC dollars in this space, John. And Carl, I wonder if this is sort of another race to the bottom. Some analysts think so, right, that now that DoorDash is getting into convenience and grocery, the margins are difficult. You're also focusing on speed. You know, you have a host of companies promising 10 and 15 minute deliveries. Uh, You saw that. Carl, pull through in DoorDash's earnings, adjusted EBITDA increased as they invest in this space, which has yet to be profitable. Um, but it was so interesting, the stock reaction. I was really scratching my head at first. The results, they weren't that good. But as John said, the shares have really have been beaten down. And the results also, we should note, did look quite good in comparison to Uber and its Eats platform. Yeah, that was the, the, the comparisons to what, the, what we've been through the last 48 hours is one potential reason for the positive stock reaction, along with, uh, John, the guide for the March quarter, at least in terms of gross order volume. It, it does appear that even though some remain skeptical, there are going to be some habits formed in COVID that just will not be shook. Yeah, and the, the real thing that I guess is troubling some investors looking at the nearer term is DoorDash is going to invest the cash that's being generated Mm -hmm. in the mature markets back into the business. They're not going to let that flow through to the bottom line. And I guess it's similar to what 
I heard from Toast, uh, was that yesterday morning, talking about, hey, uh, they're going to continue to invest in uh, restaurant expansion. There's an interesting thing here. I'm not sure it's going to be a race to the bottom, D, because the companies that have the most efficient platforms, the best data, seem to be trying Mm -hmm. to form sort of this operating system, not only for restaurants, but for a lot of of, uh, local merchants that need delivery services. So the question is, I think, if they can figure that out and deliver the right volume of local merchants in the various areas, the right volume of drivers and the efficiency of them being able to yeah. you know, have the right uh, share of wallet of the local consumer, uh, I think the mature markets are showing that it can work. It's a great point. They also have the subscription business, right, uh, which has been growing at a good clip. And I think, John, what you talk about, too, when DoorDash sort of, I still remember its IPO and when that S1 dropped, it just looked so much more profitable compared to Uber's food delivery business. And it was sort of this operating system, a different way of doing things that could be a little bit more profitable. And for this quarter, Carl, investors, they didn't look at decelerating growth. Yes, it was better than expected, but growth at the midpoint of what, 17 or 8 per- 18% in the quarter. That's coming down from 200 GOV gross order volume growth in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, you know, the higher premium that DoorDash is awarded, the fact that investors are able to look past slowing growth like this or decelerating growth um, is an indication, I think, that the market believes in Tony Hsu as well, who founded the company and is up against, you know, a competitor who's being led by an operator, perhaps. Yeah. And of course, we were reminded this morning in our interview uh, just of his humble beginnings and what he's built is truly incredible. Speaking of DoorDash, guys, uh, the company's uh, uh, price to sales ratio has plummeted over the last year. But one name that continues to see strength is NVIDIA, that stock with a price to sales ratio nearly three times that of Dash. Shares are down this morning, though, despite gross margins falling in line with investor expectations and that beat across the top of the bottom line, leading some to wonder if expectations were too high after the company's media York rise last year. Losses have picked up. Stocks now down seven and a half. John, uh, gaming up 37. Uh, data center up 71. Not a surprise. Auto down 14. I guess that was the wrinkle, uh, at least for some. I, I guess, but this is about as close as companies get to a perfect quarter. I think at a certain point, you just got to look at um, what is the impact of the expectation of rising rates, right? And, and what the impact is going to be on you know, high valuation mm-hmm. stocks and what the impact is going to be on demand overall. You know, I've, I've taken to asking DL a lot of these technology companies, including you know, Thomas Curian, uh, you know, which we had sound from yesterday, what do you expect to do if demand does indeed right. slow down even somewhat, given all of the lofty expectations? And you know, his answer was you know, quicker time to value for customers. In a way, that's probably going to be NVIDIA's answer, too, with the kinds mm-hmm. of uh, computing that they're enabling. Although, you know, all the chip CEOs that we talked to seem so bullish on demand. It's that supply side of the picture, but sort of an inverse story to DoorDash, right? The, those shares have been beaten down leading up to the earnings results, so they surged. NVIDIA, as we know, uh, commands such a high valuation relative to its peers, so perhaps not all that surprising. It doesn't say anything about the fundamentals, the fact that it is down this much, sort of the market environment that we are in. Uh, we're going to shift, though, from uh, NVIDIA. We're going to talk about another market cap. Uh, we're going to talk 
from earnings to earnings power. Third point, Stan Loeb saying he sees $1 trillion of untapped value in Amazon, telling investors the market is not recognizing the full value of the tech giant's two businesses, Amazon Web Services, its cloud business, and its e-commerce operations. Amazon is one of Third Point's largest holdings, the fund increasing its stake in recent months to a value of $784 million as of the end of the year. Loeb highlighting the position increase in a recent investor letter saying, quote, Amazon is at an important crossroads as new management considers its long-term strategic plan to move the company forward. The stock's still down 5% this year. Uh, guys, what did he say? He said it was it's a good discussion for investors at the water cooler. What could be Amazon's you know, next big business? We're certainly getting some indications of that. And I know at Investor Day, too, Bezos, now Jassy's often asked about that. What is going to be the fourth pillar? They've got e-commerce, they've got cloud, uh, and, and they have Prime. So what's the fourth thing? Is it Amazon Studios, as maybe Bezos has hinted at? We know that the streaming service um, is spending a lot on content and gaining traction. Or is it advertising, Carl, which the company finally broke out last quarter, a $10 billion in one quarter business? Yeah, that's the part is the, 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 the contribution to cash flow from AWS relative to its size of the company. But, John, it's, it's actually more interesting when you look at what's happening to activism in general. you got the situation at Hasbro now, potentially a budding situation between McDonald's and Carl Icahn. You get valuations coming in, and uh, the large investors are going to be more aggressive in seeking out solutions to get them back up. Yeah, you know, lots of ideas, Carl, as you mentioned, from the investor side. You know, when it comes to Amazon, I think the answer, from, from my perspective, is clearly advertising. That's the next big business. Look at the size of it. That They seem mm-hmm. to be using content uh, mainly to keep people happy as opposed to actually make money. But, you know, anybody who's hoping that Amazon's going to spin off AWS as tech check viewers know, <laughs> I, have this, I have this fun thing. Every year I ask Amazon CEO Andy Jassy, are you going to spin off AWS? He says no. I think there's less of a reason to do it now, perhaps, than there's ever been when you look at the amount of profit that AWS Mm -hmm. is throwing off and the amount of investment necessary for the other side uh, of the business, you know, the e-commerce logistics, where they're becoming the the biggest employer in America, hiring hundreds of thousands of people at very high wages funded by AWS. Why would you... Mm -hmm. Do you break those things up, right? I'll give you a reason in one word. Antitrust, right? They face accusations that all the data that they're collecting on the cloud side could help it compete on the e-commerce side. I know that Amazon says over and over again that it doesn't do so, but it does, John, have this growing private label business that could theoretically benefit from AWS. Yeah, I don't think breaking off AWS helps them at all since most of the criticism they're getting, uh, Carl, comes from the, the idea that they've got third-party retailers on the platform and using that data for their own first-party e-commerce. So most of the heat that they're getting is just right there within that e-commerce business. I think it stays on that e-commerce business, whether you got AWS attached to it or not. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the labor shortage or the challenges in retention, uh, John, especially regarding drivers. There was a great conference call out of Wells Fargo yesterday looking at overall labor shortages. And one of the staffing consultants they had on uh, the call said that a big reason for the trucker shortage is drug testing. You've legalized cannabis in all these states, and yet there's still a federal mandate for drug testing. Some pointed out that's maybe why we've seen Amazon get so aggressive in backing federal legalization of cannabis. Hmm. Huh. D, I mean, you're from Canada. It started up there. <laughs> uh, we, 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 thought, we thought the Canadians were just nice and laid back and everything was okay. I don't really know. 
I mean, I, I remember, you know, kids taking trucker speed D uh, to, to uh, get ready for tests in college. But that, that's the most I know about truckers and drug tests. John, since you men- mentioned Canada, um, I would be remiss to mention that the women's hockey team beat the American team, Carl. So that's I, I, John just teed me up. So I, I have to mention it. It's a <laughs> decades long rivalry. But yes, uh, uh, cannabis in it, Canada, hockey in Canada. Those are two things we know about. Yeah, definitely making good uh, from Pyeongchang. That was congratulations <laughs> to you guys. Uh, investors are not loving Applovin's most recent results. We're going to talk to the CEO in a bit. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Let's get a gut check on Cisco reporting earnings yesterday. Despite supply chain concerns, Cisco beating on the top and bottom lines. The company also approved a $15 billion increase to their stock buyback program and issued upbeat guidance for the year. This all follows reports of a $20 billion deal to take over software maker Splunk. Cisco shares up now more than 4%, John. All right, Dee. And shares of App Levin now taking a hit this morning. The stock is now more than 40% off of its all-time high, software maker for app developers delivering record quarterly revenue and adjusted EBITDA. But 2022 revenue guidance coming in lower than the street was hoping for. Joining us now, AppLevin CEO, Adam Farugi. Adam, good to see you. Um, first, I want to talk about these Google and Apple uh, identifier and, and sort of uh, data privacy changes, because uh, I'm not sure investors understand AppLevin's structure. I, I want your Uh, perspective on it. You actually have first-party data as part of your structure. You might be less affected by this, but what's your outlook on what Google and Apple are doing and how it affects your business? Yeah, thanks for having me. And the Apple changes that you're talking about, the privacy changes, really rolled out six, seven months ago, middle of last year. And Google announced just yesterday that they're going to follow suit and try to make privacy changes over the next couple years to remove an identifier that allows advertising companies to target um, consumers with better ads based on third-party data. Now, why we've been able to perform so well in the last year and why we're very confident about our business going forward is we have a games business that has 200 million plus monthly active users playing our content, giving us first-party data. And our own data is what's fueling our software business, our advertising platform to perform so well. 
this combination and this dependency on our own data sets us up really well as the marketplace goes to more privacy-centric ways to do marketing. Yeah, that was my take. I was a bit surprised to see uh, your stock specifically dipping, it seemed, on the Google privacy news. But then, you know, valuations are what they are. So who knows why these things are moving? Now, you get to the issue of you have this games apps business and also the broader software platform. It's the apps business, right, where growth was disappointing. So uh, what is your outlook for how you expect those things to balance out? It certainly seems like the software platform business is the future. Yeah, let's talk about that and then the reaction to our earnings. We had a $3.7 billion revenue guidance versus $3.8 billion consensus, which on headline looks like a miss, and the stock got hit. But let's go a level deeper. The gaming business, which trades at three times revenue because the revenue is less margin than the software business, we guided down $400 million because the gaming business is a large, mature business, and we get the data that we need at the scale we're at. Now, the software business is ripping. It grew a ton last year, and we guided up $300 million. So guiding a 20 times revenue multiple business plus $300 million should have really added $4.8 billion of market cap or 20% up. But people didn't look deeper to realize our software business, which is the core part of our business, the way we generate cash, is what's growing at, at crazy rates. We're projecting over 100% growth this year to it. And once you really realize that, you realize this is a great buying opportunity in the stock. Right. So, Adam, if you do have access to that first party data and that's driving your software business, is there more that you can be doing with it? I mean, you see Google's results in light of those Apple privacy changes. I know it's at a much different scale, but is there something you're missing here that you could be doing or moving into with your unique position and having that data that many others don't have? Well, let's talk about what we're doing. The software business in 2020 did 200 million. Last year, almost 700 million. Now we're projecting over 1.4 billion. And then next year, we're projecting approximately $2 billion. So, so that's 10x growth in three years to a software business that's exceptionally high margin. I think we're doing pretty well with the business right now. Adam, are you looking? I know that you've been quite active in M&A over the last year or so. Are you still looking? Do you think there's more consolidation to come? We're really focused on anything that could expand our software offering and the market opportunity. We've got that first-party data at scale with the gaming business. We like where that's at. And then the software business and mobile is doing really well. But we depend on video advertisements to consumers um, to really drive performance and engagement with advertiser products. And in, in the earnings call, we talked about expansion opportunities in that software business. And one of those was in connected TV, where consumers are still seeing video advertisements. And we think the capacity to bring performance advertising to television is a big opportunity. And those are the areas you might see us make the build versus buy decision to try to accelerate market expansion opportunities. So um, what is the biggest challenge then to you being able to fuel, continue fueling that expansion? I mean, uh, you've laid out, I think, nicely how the apps business, the games business is giving you the sort of data that you need to grow the software business, despite the sort of macro effects of Apple and Google's privacy changes. But what about hiring? Uh, What about go to market and sort of reaching that end customer uh, with the app that that you want to serve? What are you doing that's going to give you perhaps an advantage there versus the competition? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to execution, right? But we were confident in raising that software business plus 300 million this year and then giving that $2 billion number next year. That's a lot of growth. We're taking a software business again, that was 200 million just two years ago to $2 billion in three years. 
that requires a ton of execution. But the advantages that we have in the marketplace and the success we're driving for our advertisers gives us a ton of confidence that we're going to be able to be one of the fastest growing and largest scaled software businesses in the world. Yeah, three times as many clients using uh, your platform versus just a year ago and uh, aggressive growth targets that you're announcing. Uh, we'll be excited to see with you where that goes quarter to quarter. Adam Furugi uh, from App Levin. Thank you. Thanks. When we come back, Meta, Roblox, and now NVIDIA. Uh, the Metaverse stock slump continues. All three names down double digits since the start of the year. The head of the Metaverse ETF weighs in on how to play it next when Tech Check returns. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. I'm Melinda French-Gates, and I'm so... Melinda French-Gates' newest investment, no, not AI, Cloud Kitchens, or NFTs, or the metaverse for that matter. Julia Boyston joins us now with more on why French-Gates' Pivotal Ventures is betting on innovation in elder care, Julia. Well, it is a nearly $400 billion market opportunity, and some 55 million people, or 16.5% of the population, is currently over 65. That's projected to increase to 74 million people by 2031. Pivotal worked with Techstars to coach 10 startups over a period of 13 weeks as part of an accelerator program to help develop tech-driven products and services to tackle challenges facing the ailing population. Now, today, those founders are presenting to potential investors. And despite the stereotype of founders being young and predominantly male, this cohort is half female and the average age is 50. One of Pivotal Ventures' biggest goals is to advance women's power and influence. And we know that caregiving is a barrier to full participation in the workforce and society, especially for women. So we've made several investments in this caregiving space to address these challenges that women face. These startups presenting today address a wide range of medical and caregiving issues from wave therapeutics, smart cushioning technology to prevent bed sores, to Bright's light therapy for brain health. On Decade matches families with caregivers. There's a company called Kanumi, which is a concierge service that connects older adults with a social worker to help them manage their needs and remain more independent. MyFitPod is a platform that helps older adults 
find fitness trainers. Now, Woodmeyer says she sees other investors starting to identify this massive opportunity. PitchBook tells us that $17 billion was invested into companies developing technology to help the elderly. That's up from $7.7 billion just the year before. Guys? Julia, uh, does this represent any kind of a, a shift, even marketing-wise, in, in how Melinda French-Gates is talking about her investments or no? Well, no, I actually think this is, a, is an extension. What she's doing is Pivotal Ventures, it invests in both companies and also in nonprofits, and it also helps incubate them. And what she's trying to do is specifically with this is help women in particular. And, and you heard Wittemeyer talk about this. But what's interesting here is that when you talk about the pressure on women and, and the responsibilities they feel in terms of care, it's not just about caring for children. It's also about caring uh, for the elderly. And there are many people who are in the sandwich generation and having to take care of two different sets of people, both children and, say, their parents. And because of that, that is keeping a lot of women out of the workforce. And by addressing these issues, offering more tools, this should help more women have more of an opportunity, Uh, especially right now when we've seen so many women leave the workforce due to the pandemic, help more women in particular. Indeed. Julia, thanks. AI lender Upstart getting a rare double upgrade this morning. Bank of America taking it to buy from sell after some strong fourth quarter results and forecasting more growth in the company's personal and auto loans. Shares have almost doubled in a week. Don't miss a check-in with CEO David Gerard later this hour. Don't go away. Welcome back to Tech Check. Here's what's happening at this hour. Record revenues helping Walmart top estimates. U.S. results were particularly strong, with comp sales up 5.6%. The retailer also raised its quarterly dividend by a penny to 56 cents a share. Walmart stock up about 2%. Walmart and Cisco, the only stocks in the Dow with significant gains right now. AutoNation giving up its pre-market gains and then some. The auto retailer handily top estimates for earnings and revenues from used cars. They shot up 55% over last year. However, AutoNation shares are now down 2% after being up 5% earlier in the day. Weekly jobless claims rising unexpectedly. However, the 248,000 new claims still reflect tight labor conditions. It's the first increase in jobless claims in a month. And freezing temperatures during January put a chill on home building. Overall housing starts fell more than 4%, and single-family home building sank more than 5.5%. But that decline may be short-lived. Building permits rose last month to the highest level in nearly 16 years. That's the very latest. Carl, back over to you. All right, Frank, thanks for that. NVIDIA, just the latest disappointment in the metaverse and Roblox up this morning, but far from recovering that 26% loss earlier in the week after Q4 misses on the top and the bottom line. And, of course, there's Meta itself. The company formerly known as Facebook has lost more than a quarter of a trillion dollars in value over the last month, the biggest market wipeout for any U.S. company ever. Will the metaverse still see a big bang or just fizzle out? And how does NVIDIA factor in? Joining us to discuss that this morning, the co-founder of the Round Hill Ball Metaverse ETF, former Amazon Studios head of strategy, Matthew Ball, is back. Matthew, it's great to see you. You know, we haven't been talking about the metaverse um, as a wide, widely known conversation for very long now, but do the meta and the Roblox results uh, get us off on the wrong foot? I think any time that we're assessing generational and technological platform shifts, Evaluating any performance or transition on a quarterly basis is bound to disappoint some and to mislead us as to the overall arc. 
In this case, we're seeing a little bit of recoil from the fact that in 2021, everyone was talking about this theme, reorienting their strategies, and yet the world didn't seem that different. I would certainly agree that the narrative at this point has actually outstripped the product. Now, but on the other side, I was going to bring this up as well. We had the NFL deal with Roblox uh, last week. Nike's already been in this space for a while now. There's a very nice review of Disney's new metaverse chief, Mike White, uh, whom some people call one of the best CTOs around. I wonder, is the, is the onus now on corporates to demonstrate how they're going to use this, this technology that we really don't understand yet? Well, you're precisely right. What we're seeing is the positioning to build products to take advantage of this opportunity. Yesterday, McDonald's filed a number of different patents and trademarks for virtual restaurant experiences. We're kind of at the early App Store moment. We said a few years after the App Store launch that there's an app for that. But of course, that depended on experiences being built, consumers providing feedback, and the market figuring out exactly how to build these. It's very clear that everyone is now trying to build metaverse experiences, but they don't quite exist yet. Mike White's efforts with Disney is an endeavor to do that, but to that point, it's gonna take a few years for us to really start to evaluate whether this is substantial. Yeah, Matt, a lot of these companies that are uh, promoting metaverse narratives, I just wonder, do they really belong together? And some of the ones with the strongest narratives and the strongest IP have been demonstrating what the market is for their IP, I think, for a long time. So. I just wonder if metaverse itself is the right narrative or if there are sub-narratives that make more sense. I would certainly agree with that. The best analogy here would be to talk about the internet. Over the past 25 years, the companies at the forefront of internet services have changed. In the early 90s, the leading providers of internet-related products were hardware and connectivity providers. It took another decade until YouTube, Snapchat, Facebook, Netflix emerged. But to that point, it's not practical to just say the internet. We're talking about content. We're talking about compute. We're talking about hardware. Right now, we're lumping them all together because everyone's using the term. But certainly, we can't evaluate what McDonald's is doing or Panera, which announced the Paneraverse, alongside enterprise computing platforms such as Omniverse from NVIDIA. The Paneraverse, Matt. Uh, it's Deirdre. Good morning, by the way. So your ETF looks at public companies playing in the metaverse. That's what we often look at as well because, you know, people are trading them. But what if we're looking at the wrong companies and Meta and Roblox and Microsoft? Is it more likely that the companies that are going to lead the way and dominate the space are still public or still being built in basements at the moment? How do you capture that? It's a mixture of companies. Certainly, if you take a look at the top weightings in the Roundhill Ball Metaverse ETF, You'll see that Unity and Roblox are some of our top allocations. Those companies were not public two years ago. Five years ago, they were sub-billion dollar companies. But we've seen significant appreciations from their IPO price, Roblox less so over the past few days. Our expectation would be that over the coming decade, the composition of the index and the ETF does transform. Over the mobile and PC era, we saw five types of disruption. Some companies were destroyed, Blockbuster, AOL. Other companies were supplanted. We see that with Microsoft in computing. Some adapted, such as Disney, from the legacy era to streaming. But for the most part, leaders were altogether new. TikTok, Google, Facebook, and so forth. As this unfurls over the next 20 years, we'll see a lot of that happen. So, Matt, since, um, since the ETF began, how would you characterize flows right now relative to the short history? And when would you expect uh, that to take a leg higher, which I assume you do? 
certainly. We always got into this game expecting it to be a decade-plus trend. When you take a look at 2021 performance, TD Ameritrade said that we were the number one equity-based sector ETF launch of the year. Following June 30th through to the end, December 31st, we were in the top 3% of inflows for all ETFs. Inflows have been a lot more modest year to date. Of course, interest rates have altered that. Compression across the constituent parts have not helped either. But I think when you put this in context of 2021, we never expected it would grow as quickly as it did. We're expecting a cool off for the next little while. But over the next decade, we expect trillions of dollars to accumulate to the theme. And therefore, AUM should increase as well. Uh, fascinating. And it's a really nice tool for us to, to gauge uh, sentiment reg- reg- around the space. Uh, Matt, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank Matthew you. Ball. We have been waiting to hear from the Secretary of State, and he has just now finished speaking at the U.N. Security Council on Russia-Ukraine tensions. Kayla Tausche is monitoring and has got some headlines. Kayla. Carl, good morning. At the United Nations Security Council, Russia's deputy foreign minister accused Ukraine's government of stubbornly refusing to comply with the Minsk agreements in eastern Ukraine, where separatists are largely aligned with Moscow. The Minsk peace deal was reached in 2014 among dozens of countries, including Russia and Ukraine, and was meant to stabilize the region. Secretary of State Antony Blinken responding to Russia said Russia is fabricating such frustrations and has deceived the world on its true intentions. We were, we were supposed to have a soundbite from Secretary of Blinken there saying that uh, the, the Russians have, in fact, been building up their military forces on the border with Ukraine. I believe we do have that soundbite now, so let's go to it. Our information indicates clearly that these forces, including ground troops, aircraft, ships, are preparing to launch an attack against Ukraine in the coming days. Secretary Blinken then went into blistering detail on how an invasion would unfold, with the Kremlin staging possible terrorist bombings or mass graves or chemical warfare to justify an attack, which Blinken says would begin by air and be followed with tanks and troops advancing on Ukrainian targets and people that have already been identified. Blinken delivered this message in closing to Moscow. The Russian government can announce today with no qualification, equivocation, or deflection, that Russia will not invade Ukraine. State it clearly, state it plainly to the world, and then demonstrate it by sending your troops, your tanks, your planes back to their barracks and hangars and sending your diplomats to the negotiating table. The Russian diplomat responded to Secretary Blinken by thanking him for his remarks. Carl and Deirdre and John, back to you. Kayla, thanks for that. We know that you will continue to monitor. Meantime, we're watching Bitcoin as well. It's under pressure in today's trade. Tech Check is back in just a moment.
Don Jones, Una King, Stacey Brown, Phil Pot from Intel, Snap, Board Director, HP, and Nordstrom. We really want companies to think and to search more widely so that C-suite itself is more reflective of the world around us. If we could get these companies together to work on the same goals and create some standardization and what we call diversity, equity, and inclusion, could that accelerate the pace of change? When you look at how Silicon Valley has progressed or not progressed, is the Valley making good progress? Do I think we have a long way to go? 100%. I have seen a lot of great leaders step up to focus on diversity. Leaders who focus on it in an intentional way have seen the progress that they want to see, and those who've not been intentional about it haven't made that much progress. We talk about increasing more women in the tech industry, and yet every company basically has a different definition of what leadership is. It really is about how do we get the resources through our collective action into those communities that need it most. Where you sit in this hotbed of innovation, what's our opportunity? This is about telling a story about why we matter, why the diversity of experiences that we all have had matter, why our, our skin color is different, and that matters, and that means something. Thanks to Nordstrom, Stacey Brown, Phil Potts, Snaps, Una King, and Intel's Don Jones for those insights. Uh, actually, Brown, Phil Pot on a lot of boards. Uh, now, going deeper, our Frank Holland joins us with a look at the consequences of underrepresentation in tech leadership. Frank? Hey there, John. Black developers, programmers, and engineers hold less than 5% of those jobs, and many companies and institutions are addressing the real-world consequences of underrepresentation in the digital world. The ACLU and Harvard have both published research finding that AI can lead to discrimination in housing, education, and hiring due to bias in development or in use. After the killing of George Floyd, IBM, Amazon, and Microsoft, they all voluntarily halted sales of their facial recognition technology to law enforcement over concerns about racial discrimination. IBM has exited that business altogether. Black Americans are 12% of the population, but only 8% of the tech workforce and an even smaller percentage of decision makers at big tech companies. DevColor, a nonprofit that helps companies find black tech talent, says there's an urgent need for diversity in development and decision making. The very technology that is often designed to help and support communities can do real harm when we don't have black leaders and historically marginalized leaders at the table and not just at the table to share perspective, but to literally shape and build and create uh, the future. The very issues that we're trying to solve cannot be solved in the same ways, with the same conditions and sometimes with the same people uh, who created them. Dev Color says change starts with creating a culture that values diversity. A recent survey by the nonprofit found 85% of black tech workers would switch jobs just to feel more valued. Also, black male tech workers make less than 11% than the typical tech worker, black women, 26% less. Deirdre, back over to you. Frank, thanks for a comprehensive look at that. Uh, we'll hope to hear more from you. Time for a gut check now on Palantir. The stock is taking a hit after earnings fell short of Wall Street estimates, though fourth quarter revenue did exceed expectations, up 34% from a year earlier. Shares are down more than 10%. Tech check, still ahead. Stay with us.
Let's turn now to Upstart. The AI lending platform posting a massive beat in its latest quarter and issuing upbeat guidance for the quarter ahead. Shares are higher this morning on top of a more than 30 percent surge yesterday. Joining us now, Upstart founder and CEO Dave Gerard. Uh, Dave, good morning. It's great to have you with us. Before we get into the quarter, perhaps you could just walk our audience through your model, how AI underpins your underwriting standards and how you're modeling in rising rates this year. Yeah, sure. So we're an AI lending platform, and that means we help banks and credit unions uh, originate consumer credit by using uh, more sophisticated risk models powered by AI, powered by a lot of um, a lot of training data, et cetera. And um, uh, our, when our models get better, that means they more accurately decide to whom you know, to make an offer of credit and, and at what price. And um, that helps our banks, you know, uh, grow their businesses, grow them responsibly and profitably, uh, but also able to serve more customers or prove more customers. So it's that combination of, of, of the right price, the right product, and really making it kind of an instant frictionless process that, that makes things work well for us. And it's, it's why we're thriving right now. Right, Dave. So those tools that you talk about, they have been developed in a period of low interest rates. So again, how do you model in a rising rate environment this year? Yeah, that's a good question, Deirdre. But, you know, our, our over time, we've built more sophistication into our models to understand the macro environment in which they're operating. So, for example, you know, where are unemployment rates today and where are they going? Um, things like um, inflation and uh, just understanding the sort of background macro. And, and that's the thing you can do with a fairly sophisticated model, not only evaluating you know, an individual who's applying for a loan, but also understanding the backdrop of, of where we sit today and also you know, potentially where, where we're likely to be over the term of the loan and making sure that you, you know, sort of appropriately compensate for all that. We aren't macro predictors per se. We aren't trying to make bets on the future in terms of macro, but it is important that we understand exactly where we sit today. And then as soon as we have new data and, and, and there's sort of a, a new reality that's emerging, um, responding to that appropriately. COVID was, was certainly, for the last couple of years, a real exercise in understanding exactly what was going on out there and the different ways that credit performance can be impacted. Yeah, Dave, um, my question really is about delinquencies, the rising delinquencies that uh, you guys talked about on your earnings call. You said in a way that that's not bad because you've opened up uh, the, the universe to, to people who otherwise might not have gotten credit. But uh, is your AI good enough to offset, you know, lower credit quality with actually uh, predicting that um, and, and not ending up in trouble? How, how can we be sure? How can investors be sure? Yeah, first of all, the way our system works is our AI models are always trying to improve their ability to predict risk. Our bank partners have a lot of controls, how they mitigate what risk appetite they have. Um, what sort of returns they're looking for. They can put all sorts of limits on the system in ways that uh, they have a lot of degrees of control. But it's important to say, John, in any AI system, what the system hasn't seen before, it doesn't know. So it needs to treat that type of kind of experience very cautiously. And it's like a self-driving car that went somewhere that suddenly, you know, has no history going to a particular part of the country or something uh, would have to be extremely careful. Just like that, an, an AI lending platform that has not seen a particular type of consumer or applicant before is going to be very conservative and cautious. And over time, it will begin to gather data and have a more informed opinion about the riskiness of a particular applicant, a particular loan. And it will do the right things. But you have to be smart. And, and, and sort of bring your model slowly to understand more parts of the population that you aim to serve over time. Well, I wonder, 
did you test this model on kind of historical events also? Because I, I, I want, I'm thinking back to the housing crisis, right? I mean, there was a lot of things that were going on there that we hadn't seen before. Would AI have helped or would it have just been stumped and, and said, wow, uh, that's a new one? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, you certainly tr do as much back testing as you can and sampling of data from the past and trying to understand, you know, the relationships between unemployment and default, which aren't necessarily a one-to-one, -one, um, and also what people are more likely to be impacted, what industries are more likely to be impacted. So, you know, the model's all, always getting a, a little better. I mean, we, it, it learned a ton during COVID. Um, but of course, the next economic event will be very different, and, and we wouldn't expect it to be perfect. But it's important to say, you know, it's relative capability that really matters, relative to a sort of traditional FICO-centric rules-based model, you know, the degree of sophistication is, is significantly beyond that. In our view, it's at least five times as much as predictive. So it's not gonna be perfect. And in the next, you know, economic event, we all unfortunately will see it sometime in the future. We, we don't, we certainly don't claim it will be perfect. Um, you know, mm -hmm. rising unemployment in, results in higher loss rates in any system. That's just a given. But it's who can navigate that, who can predict that, who can do the right thing with it. And mm -hmm. um, obviously, very sophisticated uh, software, AI-based software, uh, we think has the best chance to do that right. Dave Gerard, thank you very much for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Guys, one more thing. Kathy Wood is going to join the half exclusively in a few moments. As you know, by now, she went all in on Roblox yesterday, picking up about 450,000 shares at the close. I uh, can't wait for uh, the guys on the half to talk to her about um, other activity in the ARC fund lately, especially selling a bit of Twitter. Meanwhile, tonight, we'll get some Roku earnings, uh, Dropbox and Shake Shack. By the way, just in terms of market activity, we have come off the uh, early morning lows. Dow's down four. Uh, energy has managed to go green for now. And the S&P guys will remain green for the week uh, so long as it stays above 4101. Right now, I've got about a 20-point cushion on that front. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.